Jesus's movement is growing. Jesus' people are starting to multiply. And the powers that be, he talked about the religious leaders that started to reject Jesus' message. Well, the powers that be are beginning to take notice. The last two chapters we read, Matthew, uh, Dan taught chapter 11, I think, and then 12. And these two chapters were all about Jewish leaders responding to Jesus. And now in chapter 14, where we are today, the, po- the politicians are starting to take notice now. It's not just Jewish leaders in the temple. Now it's the, it's the winers and the diners and the palaces that are beginning to take notice of Jesus. So let's start reading from Matthew 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Then verse three, now Herod had arrested John, it's a flashback here, and he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that a request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Okay, so, so John the Baptist. Last time we saw John the Baptist, where was he? In jail. Yeah, he was in jail, and now he, we find out why. This whole story tells you why. Now he's beheaded during this royal sex feast, in a palace full of the politicians because of the drunken, impulsive, lusty vow of Israel's narcissistic ruler who had serious family issues, okay? So that's a story. That's a story. That's the big picture backdrop for Matthew's halftime story right now. And and it's this, here's the backdrop. The kingdoms of the world rumble on. They always just cycle on, doing what humans have always done. War on the borders sex scandals, national leaders saying and doing, doing things to save their face. It's about money and land and power and sex doesn't sound familiar to us at all, right? Like that, no, that, like this is, is there anything new under the sun? Like this, this is every cycle of human empire. It always has been this way. This is part of the point. This is part of Matthew's point. In fact, 30 years before this, when Jesus was a baby, the previous generation of Herods, tried to kill two-year-old Jesus, but failed, and instead killed a bunch of other two-year-olds in Bethlehem. Uh, and now, 30 years later, another cycle of Herods rises up, and the latest, greatest Herod starts acting up, and it's the same cycle of human empire throughout all of human history. And this is how it's been through all of human civilization. It's been like this. The shadow of empire is always trying to loom over God's kingdom. Okay? and God's kingdom people. It's human history. Somehow, when we humans get together and build empires, it's just never a compatible or favorable environment for the kingdom of God. 
Uh, you just open a history book. Because human empire, whether you're Rome or the Byzantines or the British Commonwealth in its heyday or, and then the, the U.S. empire, whatever empire you're talking about at any point in history, it's just always ego and power and lust and violence and money and sex just on a massive scale projected out into the world and thousands if not millions of people die. And unfortunately, right here, we have John the Baptist dying. He's a casualty of the kingdoms of humans. He, uh, he's part of this sketchy sex feast incident where Herod uh, has his wife's daughter come dance for the guests. And it says, she pleased Herod so much. And yes, that's just as sketchy as it sounds. Um, Herod, just drunk with lust and liquor, offers to grant her one wish. Just don't even picture the scene. Uh, so, she, so she goes to her mom, and her mom makes her order John the Baptist's severed, bloody head during a birthday on a platter. And so happy Sunday at Park Hill. That's like, that's the story here in Point Loma right now. So that's the backdrop. Kingdoms of the world rumble on, doing what humans have always done. It's about money and land and power, and especially in this story, sex. Sex and sexuality. So according to Matthew, this whole debacle, it, it started when Herod Antipas stole his brother Herod Philip's wife out from under him. And this prompted John the Baptist to do what all good prophets of Israel did in the past. And, and so what does a good prophet of Israel do? They go to the leader, they go to the top, and they call Israel from top down back to covenant life under Torah. That's just what prophets always do. And John's just doing what good prophets do. He starts prophetically calling Herod back to the terms of God's covenant. And in Herod's case, this meant calling him to embrace God's vision for sexuality and marriage, okay? This is where this whole fiasco starts. This is where all of chapter 14 flows out of. Sexuality, and, and I would add equally singleness to this. Within the sexuality umbrella, there is singleness and there is marriage. And John is calling Herod and all of Israel by default. Hey, you are God's people, I'm not going to Caesar. They have not identified with God's ways. Why would they expect to be held to God's ethic? I'm going to God's people, and I'm calling you to embrace God's vision for flourishing in sexuality, which involves both marriage and singleness. That's where this whole fiasco starts. So here it is again. Let's just read it. Verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because the people liked him. They thought he was a prophet, because he was. So again, John prophetically calls out his pseudo-religious national leader for sexual deviance calling him back to covenant faithfulness, and John gets beheaded for it, okay? So I wanna, I wanna ask, what's going on here? This is very important. Why is Matthew putting this story at halftime in his gospel? I, Matthew wants us to be keenly aware of this. There's a slide for this, because this is huge. Followers of Jesus expect to be persecuted, just like Jesus will, for views that are unpopular in culture. 
This has been the message for chapter after chapter now. And listen, listen, don't hear me wrong right now. It's not because Christians are just anti and contrarian and trying to be controlling and trying to get a seat in the Senate or whatever. It's not because of that. It's, it's that followers of Jesus want more than anything to be a people committed to living out Jesus's vision for human flourishing in a world full of conflicting and competing visions. That's it. It's as if Matthew is taking this halftime moment to flash back to the murder of John the Baptist to foreshadow the murder of Jesus, both involving Herod. So Matthew's readers would be like, whoa, John's, the Herod, the execution, this is like Jesus. This is a pattern in the kingdom for people of Jesus. Followers of Jesus will be persecuted just like Jesus will for views that aren't culturally savvy. And obviously in our culture, in our culture of religious freedom and American independence, the majority of persecution most of us are gonna face is like an eye roll during biology class or something. Or, or like getting written up at work, which can be devastating, but it's not beheading. So, so most cultures of Christians throughout history actually feared things more like beheading. So we're very unique right now. This is a blip, this is a blip on, a, on a different kind of trajectory, like this where we're at right now. We have to know that, to be self-aware in that. Because the bottom line is, as followers of Jesus practice the way of Jesus and preach the ethic and the message of Jesus in our communities, Matthew's saying, expect opposition. That's, that's part and parcel of this. Okay, so what was John's message to Herod? Why was it so offensive to Herod? It's just a couple words. It's one sentence. Matthew records one sentence. It says, John kept on saying what? Quote, it is not lawful for you to have her. And what, what's John doing there? Again, he's calling God's people away from the cultural definition of sex. And he's pointing them back to Torah. And there's tons to say here. You guys, like what John is doing here is he's, he's giving Herod a hyperlink that if you double click on it, you go to Leviticus 18 and you have the sexual purity codes that Jesus said, I fulfill these and I call you to them. There's so much there. We don't have time to get into that. But for the sake of time, simply put, John calls God's people back into the creator's vision for human sexuality which is, in short, marriage and singleness, according to Jesus. Both marriage and singleness are beautiful and essential to God's plan for human sexuality. That's what this is about. That's, that's Matthew's halftime show right now. This is what John and Matthew are doing. So this is where we're going. Marriage and sexuality, according to Jesus. So I want to say this before we go any deeper right now. Uh, in a room where, whenever you talk about marriage, there's probably so many, right now, in this room, there's probably so many different opinions and, and places you are in your journey. Uh, and to bring up marriage for some of you is, is like to bring up a ton of pain from your past or maybe your present right now. Um, I mean, maybe you've, maybe you've been divorced. And so to talk about marriage is literally like a knife in your soul. I recognize that. We want to recognize that as a family. And there's probably people here who are genuinely lonely, and you're like, please don't rub this in my face again. The very longing of my heart. Please don't go there. And, and there's, different, there's different views on this. We live at such an interesting time in the world to be wrestling through the very definition of marriage. 
It's such an interesting time. I mean, I, just personally speaking, I've been married 17 years. This November will be 18, which is bizarre. It's crazy. Honestly, I'm married to the most incredible, strong woman. Um, she's mainly incredible because she puts up with my inconsistencies uh, as just a, a spur of the moment, on a whim, change my mind every moment kind of guy. And I just think she's absolutely incredible. I mean, she, she's really so much stronger than me in the majority of areas I could list on a piece of paper. I mean, Park Hill Church was ultimately planted because of her almost 10-year commitment to a vision and holding me to what I said I would do. So uh, she's absolutely incredible, okay? Uh, but all, all this to say, this conversation is where we as Park Hill leaders believe the Spirit wants us to go this week, but not just this week. This is not just a special week about sex, okay? This is a life together, a conversation together for the rest of our lives as a community to lift up Jesus' vision for this, to lift up his vision for marriage and singleness. People don't often talk about singleness in the sexuality conversation, but it is just as important as talking about marriage in the sexuality conversation. So since Matthew highlights marriage and sexuality here at this halfway point, here we go, okay? So the deep dive is now. Our city is a melting pot, not, not just of cultures and ethnicities and race, but of so-called conservative and progressive persuasions, right? I mean, a heavy military presence brings a spirit of nationalism to our city, which comes with traditional sexual and religious values. And then also San Diego's, on the other hand, it's known as an LGBTQ hub. That's just our city. It's like a kaleidoscope of various perspectives and values. So in the middle of this kaleidoscope is the church. And followers of Jesus exist as a living witness to the covenant love of God as expressed in the story of Scripture. That's what we exist as, okay? It's not that we Christians, and listen, it's not that we Christians have all the answers. It's actually quite the contrary. It's not that we have all the answers and everyone else has to come find the church with all their questions. No, it's that the Creator has revealed Himself fully in a person, and that person, Jesus, has given the world his vision for human flourishing. And so people who follow that person, which is the church, those people, us, are by definition people who go live out Jesus' vision for human flourishing as practice and as obedience together in their city. And that's what we've seen in Matthew. And we're actually going to continue see, seeing this because Jesus addressed few topics, very few topics, with greater clarity and punch than the topic of sexuality. Jesus goes there with his disciples in a way that makes them uncomfortable, multiple times. Um, a good chunk of this sermon, it comes from the work of one of my best friends, John Mark Comer, who wrote this fantastic book. The title's on the screen, so you can write it down and look it up. Loveology is the name of the book. God, love, marriage, sex, and the never-ending story of male and female. Love this book. It reads like a, I don't know, like a bunch of tweets. It's, it's like you're looking at a blog on paper. Super great, easy read, highly recommend it. And I want to say this, and this is the next slide. There is a drastic difference between the way culture defines sex and the way the writers of the Bible define sex. Our culture, and this is broadly speaking, this is my just like generalization, I realize that, but our culture defines sex as basically pleasurable recreational activity between consenting adults, 
Like, play for grown-ups. Right? I mean, as long as we're, like, the idea is it's recreational, it's pleasure, it's physical, it's just biological, it's just the coupling of two bodies for sexual release, and as long as it's mutually beneficial and everything is consent, then hey, what's the big deal? Let's just play for grown-ups. That's like the cultural definition of sex. And, and then, though, the church comes along and buys that vision and says, yeah, that's what sex is. And by the way, you can't do it unless you're married. Oh, and by the way, you can't do it unless you're married to, like, opposite sex. And so the, the, the church then sounds like this, this helicopter police that just comes in with a finger. And for most of us in the 21st century, we look at that, that attitude, and they're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, it's crazy. That's insane. I mean, what kind of backwards traditional, uneducated, outdated thinking is that? Makes no sense. But when you look at the writers of the Bible, they have this much higher view of sexuality. When you actually read these biblical authors painting this vision, and, th- and now the question, let me anticipate your question. Uh, why, should, why should this collection of ancient documents have any say? over how I do my body stuff? Like, well, uh, short answer to that is because Jesus said they carry his authority, and that matters to followers of Jesus. And if you want the long answer to that, you can check out our podcast in our pillar series in January, where we looked at the authority of scripture on our first pillar Sunday in January. And the point is, the biblical authors, they have this profoundly robust, rich, view of sexuality. In the, ver- in the very first line of the Bible, even, you begin to see whispers of it. We see the joining together of heaven and earth. In the first Bible, what's the first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see the joint, the coming together of two spaces, two different yet interlocking spaces, God's space and our space. The whole creation story follows this pattern. The whole, I don't know if you noticed this. It's profound. I can't unsee it. Okay, look at this slide right here. God's different yet complementary creation pattern in Genesis. Heaven and earth come together, verse one, belong together. Day and night come together, verse five. Evening and morning is repeated throughout. Evening and there was morning, there was evening, there was morning. Sea and land, and by the way, what happens when day and night come together on that meeting spot? When day and night meet, you get the most beautiful part of the day, don't you? You get like dawn and dusk. Or what happens when land and sea join together? What happens when they actually meet? You get million-dollar real estate. <laughs> and, and so you're on a balcony on your bazillion-dollar house looking at this combining of light and dark. Where the opposites come together and congeal is where the action is, you guys. This is what the author is actually saying. He's going there. You have the sea and land. You have sun and moon. You have plants and animals. In the animal kingdom, you have male and female. And then humans in God's image. It's like the climax. You have God's own image in equal yet complementary interlocking pairs. It's like God is blasting this message. It's a climax. And then it ends in Genesis 2, verse 24, with the purpose statement. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And that one flesh there is the Hebrew word echad. Can you say that? Echad. Yeah. The D is soft, like, the, like a Spanish D. And then the, the, it, the thing is like a 
spit. <laughs> like, you know, so, so echad. And, and that word echad, it is, it is a graphic, heavy word. It's the same word that most famous, uh, the most famous Hebrew prayer, the Shema. You know the most famous Hebrew prayer? The Lord our God is one. A hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. That word one is echad. God, God himself is echad. God is one. And when you put that word echad with levasar, which is flesh, when you put that together, you get this one flesh. There's a slide for that. It's, it's, a, it's a Hebrew idiom that means fused together at the deepest level. So when a man and woman make love, we're fused together at the deepest level. You guys, we're more than just a body. We're more than just chemicals that rise and fall based on circumstances. Our body is very much a part of who we are, but we are more than a body. We're holistic, integrated creatures made in the image of God. Physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, it's all you. It's all me. And when two people, two separate, autonomous human beings are fused together in sex, it's so much more than physical. In some mystic, profound, soul-to-soul way, the two become echad. So from the earliest authors of the Bible, heaven and earth, two different yet interlocking spheres of God's creation, and they belong together. In fact, they belong together so much that the Bible had to end that way too. How does the end of the Bible? The last two chapters are just like the first two chapters. Last two chapters, you have the new Jerusalem of God's people rising to meet the son of God as he comes and claims his bride. And what is that situation called? The new heaven and earth. This, this whole thing is written there. Heaven and earth, they belong together. This is reflected in light and dark, land and sea, plants and animals, and ultimately in the coming together of one man and one woman as echad. And this is, this is what the rest of the authors of the Bible keep coming back to. The rest of the Hebrew scriptures, we usually, the Hebrew scriptures, you know, that's also another name for the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is a long, bloody, X-rated, brutal story after story of God in heaven pursuing oneness with humans on earth. And it's this, this oneness thing that he wants is this covenant, this covenant relationship and on a global level, in the Old Testament, God is always portrayed as like a bridegroom, and Israel's the bride. They keep coming back to that metaphor. And then if you drill deeper into the Old Testament, you see individual stories that aren't, <laughs> they aren't exactly awesome looking. I mean, humans all through the Old Testament have this innate drive towards this one man, one woman ideal. They have this drive, but do the Old Testament heroes like stick with that like <laughs> paradigm? Like, no, if you've read many of the heroes in the Bible, it's like, it's, it's like deviant after deviant after deviant, just unspeakable kinds of sex acts. And um, just, just to give you a few, Lamech, in the earliest parts of the Bible, he leads the way in being the first to take two wives. Not awesome. Abraham also had more than one wife. Not to mention an earlier fling with a maidservant that his wife like, told him to do and then got bitter about and then blew up. And then Isaac is one of the few patriarchs who appears to have only one wife, though his wife, Rebecca, manipulates and deceives him. Happy ending to that story. And then Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, pretty important guy named Israel, he has two wives plus two concubines on the side. The breakdown of marriage, after all that, in Israel leads to the regulation of divorce and remarriage and the Mosaic law, and on and on it goes, till finally you get to David and Solomon when the kings of Israel start rising up. And by that time, you have ancient Near Eastern polygamy in full swing. 
Uh, and and the, the, the interesting thing about that is that the biblical authors don't seem explicitly bothered by all of the polygamy. Yes, the stories end badly for the polygamists, but no one comes out and like says, I'm sorry for being a polygamist. It's just messy, okay? <laughs> it's just gnarly. I mean, David has an adulterous and murderous fling with this lady, and he gets called out for that, but there's not a whole lot of other guys getting called out for what we would consider horrific uh, sexual situations. So the Old Testament obviously starts with this ideal, but this one man, one woman ideal, but it's not, not exactly a recurring theme. Let's put it that way, okay? Uh, in fact, a bunch of the Bible's greatest heroes just ignore monogamy altogether. And so by the end of the Old Testament, you're like, what's the point? Like, so when you get through all those gross, violent, messy marriage stories, and you finally now get to Jesus... I don't know about you, but the progressive sensibilities in me, they go, oh man, like Jesus is here, good. It's love and peace or else. Like Jesus is gonna clean it up for everyone and it's easy to imagine Jesus just scrapping the outdated stuff, like scrapping the whole idea of male-female monogamy for an updated version of sexual expression. Like Jesus is the super nice loving guy and he's the love and peace guy. I mean, he did the whole, you heard it said of old, but now I say to you thing. He's, he's gonna, he did that about nonviolence. He did it about anger. He's going to do it about sex too, probably, right? He's going to give us an update. Um, but when we get to the New Testament, we find something actually super shocking. And, and if you read the story, it's just as shocking for his hearers as it is for our hearers. Rather than loosening up on the Genesis one man, one woman marriage teaching, Jesus doubles down on it. Totally unexpected. Like seriously, this was a bomb. Picture this as a bomb. His hearers were not expecting this. This was an open debate for his hearers. Jesus is like, closed. <laughs> well, come on, are you serious right now? Like his first century hearers are just as shocked about this as 21st century American heroes are. I feel that. I want to acknowledge that. This is shocking. And Jesus is clear in Mark 10 and Matthew 5. Jesus is God with us. His kingdom is coming. He's going to heal and bring hope and invite everyone to the table. And, and as that king, he goes back to the beginning, quoting Genesis, what? And declaring shockingly, in the beginning, this is Jesus quoting Genesis. In the beginning, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become, there it is, echad. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Very unexpected. I think if you're, if you're used to a religious environment, a Christian environment, you just hear this and you're like, oh yeah, that's just what Jesus, no, no, it wasn't, oh yeah, <laughs> when his hearers heard him say this. In fact, uh, they were so confused by Jesus' clear, strict simplicity, just as many are today, that they asked Jesus, how, did, how is this even supposed to work practically? They're like, well, it's better than no one gets married then. Like, that was their reaction. And Jesus' answer, Jesus' answer, quote, this is the way God planned it from the beginning, end quote. Man, Jesus, give us some more than that. Like, that's intense. But for Jesus, and here it is, this is kind of like the heartbeat today. For Jesus, 
the coming together of one man and one woman as echad, one flesh, is the divine signpost that points to God's ultimate goal for the entire universe, which is the coming together of the different yet interlocking spheres of heaven and earth into God's new creation. And he invites everyone to be a part of that. This is why the biblical authors keep coming back to this. They keep, even Paul, after Jesus, Paul, he's writing this letter to Corinth. And Corinth was like deep in all kinds of sex acts. I mean, you just read that book, crazy sex stuff going on in the church, like way, way outside of marriage. We discover from this letter that, I want you to understand this. When you read Paul, you discover when he writes to Corinth, anything, anything that's around today, like in LA porn scene or Vegas, anything that's around today in the modern world, it was around back then. Like, just read it. Like all the sexual expression and exploration we see in America or in the media or on the internet, it was all around in the ancient world. Just read 1 Corinthians. It was all there and then some. Um, so when Paul is addressing all of this, what does he do? He goes back to Genesis 2 the same way Jesus does. Quote, he says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, there it is again. The two will become echad, one flesh. So what we actually see in the scriptures is actually a super high view of what happens in sex. It's way higher than the view of culture that basically reduces sex down to play for consenting grown-ups. God is saying to us, no, it's so much more than that. Two sexually different yet equal partners are actually becoming one flesh at the deepest level. Why? To confirm, express, and deepen their intimacy and connection as husband and wife. And it's beautiful. It's raw and it's beautiful and it's, it's actually nuclear the way it changes and energizes the world. In fact, sex is so beautiful and so powerful that the only container that can actually handle that raw nuclear force is marriage. That's the only container that can actually manage that nuclear reaction. It's a covenant, and not just a contract, a covenant, like a promise between a man and a woman in relationship for life till death do us part, no matter what happens, whether you're sick or healthy or beautiful or just beautiful for a little bit or whatever, like either way, it's, it's, I, will be, it's I will be faithful to you no matter what, and this covenant is between you and me and my church and my family, I speak that into existence. So followers of Jesus live under the sex ethic of Jesus, which recognizes this marriage covenant as the only container that can handle the raw, untamed energy and beauty and force of sex. And, and dozens of studies, not even Christian studies, dozens of studies have been done on this. I highly recommend checking out the work of Brad Wilcox. Look on the screen. Brad Wilcox, he oversees the National Marriage Project, which is based out of the University of Virginia. He comes from Princeton and Yale. They oversaw some pretty fascinating studies on, get this, who's really having the best sex? So many surveyed. Not a Christian study. And, and, and to basically sum it up, the people that report the highest levels of sexual satisfaction, they are monogamous married couples who had little to no sexual intercourse before marriage. And the biblical authors are like, there you go. And, and, then, and, the, people, and the people who report the lowest levels of sexual satisfaction, 
are basically consistently younger adults who are unmarried with many transient sexual relationships. So Hollywood's mirage, and it's really a mirage, of, hey, you want the best sex if you're young and beautiful and open to multiple partners, and if it's just on a whim after like two drinks and you, you rush into your apartment, it just happens and you wake up sort of regretted, but it was beautiful, like that, like that Hollywood thing. That mirage is actually 180 degrees from the reality where the best sex is actually more like a 45-year-old married couple with three noisy kids who finally fell asleep and they're celebrating their 20th anniversary and deeply enjoying lovemaking with one another. This is the fruit of Jesus' vision for human flourishing. It's the coming together of two sexually different yet equal partners into echad, one flesh, within a shared covenant. And this is why the very thing that's so beautiful inside of marriage, which is that fusing of body and soul at the primal subatomic level, it's so healing and unifying and beautiful inside of marriage. That's why the same thing outside of marriage can, can actually become the, the exact same force that dehumanizes. Because when you become one flesh, not with one person for life, but with a different person every couple weeks or every couple months or even every so often, every time you walk away from a sexual partner, it's as if you tear echad. And this essentially has the effect of hollowing a person out from the inside. And listen, right then I want to acknowledge what happened for many of you in the room, for some of you. I want to say right away, there's, there's, there's no amount of guesswork here. In any room like this, I know that there are some sitting right now and you know how painful that tearing can be. My dear friends, I want you to hear this. It's okay to identify the presence of that pain, to name that pain and to confess that pain not, and, and to release that pain. This is the space for that healing work, because guess what? Jesus wants to heal you and to bring you into his kingdom. His kingdom is for you. No matter who you are or what you've done or what has been done to you or whatever, there is no such thing as damaged goods in the kingdom of the good father. No matter where you are in your journey, Jesus invites you today to step into his family of faith and be healed. Name the pain. It's okay. The pain is there for a reason, and Jesus wants to heal it and take you forward into intimacy unlike you've ever experienced more and more into his family. So as followers of Jesus, we actually have this higher, beautiful view of sexuality that involves marriage and singleness and this gravitational pull towards this final marriage between Jesus and his people. And it's not a lower view. It's a higher view than culture. And this is what John the Baptist is calling his people to. This is what Jesus is calling us to step into today, to get back to the mysterious and beautiful and powerful reality of what happens when a husband and wife make love in covenant with God and one another. Because according to Jesus and the writers of the Bible that Jesus mediates his authority through, that one flesh union, I want to use that language again, it's a divine signpost pointing to the greatest reality of all, which is this, that God and his beloved creation belong together. God wants that union. Jesus will have his bride because heaven and earth were made for each other. Okay, as Park Hill leaders, 
we realize this whole conversation right now, it raises all kinds of questions and implications around the complex conversation around marriage and singleness and sexual expression. And we are convinced that these questions are best addressed in the grittiness of authentic relationship together as God's spirit-driven community. Park Hill Church is a community, both two things. It's like picture two scales. Park Hill Church is a community that both lives in radical grace with one another, total grace with one another, and relentlessly commits together to practicing the way of Jesus as our primary call to obedience. Both. It's not either or. It's not either or. Matthew puts this Herod story, this crazy, violent, X-rated, dysfunctional story in the middle of this gospel to remind us, remember, followers of Jesus are to expect opposition, just like Jesus will. If you're never gonna be like physically harmed for your faith, at least expect to be rejected for views that are unpopular and not because we're anti or whatever, but because along with the biblical authors and the witness of 2,000 years of church tradition, we stand under Jesus's authority. We live in full obedience to Jesus' teachings in the middle of a culture that is opposed to his teachings or at least in conflict or in open dialogue against his teachings or however you wanna frame it. I mean, we, we see this not just in the sexuality conversation. I mean, when, when Preston Sprinkle, I don't know if you were here, like during the spring, Preston Sprinkle came last spring and he unpacked Jesus' teachings on non-retaliation, non-violence, enemy love. And, and, and the, the next Sunday, I don't know if you noticed this, there were 150 less people here. <laughs> and, and granted, it might have been because that's when school got out, but 150 empty seats is a lot of empty seats. And, and now, now Matthew's not just talking about how to love your enemy, but Matthew and John and Jesus are getting into our sex lives. And it's like Matthew's saying, look where it got John. Look where it got John the Baptist. Like, don't expect to win friends and influence people with this message. Matthew looks at Herod's violent, elitist, sketchy, and, and really womanizing political feast. Listen to this. In the same breath. He turns a corner and he looks at another feast. This same chapter has two feasts side by side. This violent, politically charged, just orgy. And then Jesus, the poor, the rich, the hungry, the needy, 5,000 plus women and children, and all are fed equally. Everyone gets a seat at the table. Everyone fills their belly to the brim and then some. And it's like Matthew's saying, which feast do you want to be a part of? He holds up these two and he's like, which, which feast do you truly long for? You see, faithfulness to Jesus' way, it leads to a feast, like the great feast. A feast where Jesus welcomes all who will accept his message. And as always, Jesus' way, like, it's so inclusive. It's so open to all. 
and it's so exclusive only through him, both at the same time. Only Jesus can do something like that. And at the end of the Jesus feast, Matthew says there's 12 baskets left over. We're not gonna read it for sake of time. You guys read it today. There's 12 baskets left over. That number is significant. 12 to a Jewish reader, it's the people of God's number. So he's saying, you are now the people of God, and now you are filled from me, and the bread is broken. You go be broken like me, following my way, even if it breaks you, and you will feed the world that way. Go take these baskets full. These are you. You go feed them now. He's constituting, he's creating, Jesus is creating a people out of his teachings that will actually go feed people where they're truly hungriest for his presence, for his healing, where his kingdom is coming. And then at the end of this chapter, there's one last story where Jesus walks on the water and they're all scared. Oh my gosh, it's a ghost. And Jesus is like, it's I. It's like, it's like he finishes this knowing that we'll be scared of this teaching. It's like Matthew knows that this whole conversation is scary. Following Jesus' way in a place that is hostile towards the Jesus way. And it's like, he's like, no, you'll be broken bread. You'll go feed the world. And don't be afraid. The storm seems chaotic, but it is I. Don't be afraid, he says. It's I. Don't be afraid. The chaos monsters that hover underneath the boat have no say here. Not even the gates of hell can stand against the church. It's I. Don't be afraid. Did you know that's by far the most common command God gives humans in the Bible? Don't be afraid. By far the most common command in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Jesus, who is the word in flesh, he comes walking to his disciples in the middle of their storm and chaos. What's the world like? Where's it all going? What do I do? Am I gonna get beheaded for my views and for lining myself with Jesus? And Jesus says, don't be afraid. This is what heaven has to say to earth. As God's people live under the way of Jesus and opposition keeps coming and the chaos of culture keeps shifting, Jesus is what God has to say. Do you hear that? Jesus as the word means Jesus is literally what God has to say. And what God has to say through Jesus is don't be afraid. Which feast do you truly long for? I know the answer. God knows the answer. Your deepest longing. Jesus' kingdom will never stop coming. Human empires will rumble on. They'll rise and fall like a roller coaster. That's the way history works. And there's bound to be casualties for sure. Some of us have known people who have died for their faith. But Jesus' kingdom will never stop coming. Which feast do you truly long for? Can we stand together?